We've been doing uh, a whole load of stuff on the kingdom of God, and we feel like this is a series that we're going to live with for quite a long time, just feel like we need to keep coming back to it. God's kingdom comes. You know, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than any other subject. And even when he wasn't talking about the kingdom of God, he was talking about aspects of the kingdom, even though he didn't use the word kingdom. (laughs) He was obsessed about his kingdom. The king has come. (laughs) The king came, and the king has come, and the king is coming. So we want to be obsessed about the kingdom of God. Jesus told us not to build the church, not to structure the church, but to advance the kingdom. So that's what we want to get hold of. That's what we want to push into. And in part one, we did several weeks on uh, the kingdom, uh, kingdom warfare. Uh, the fact that the kingdom come is resisted. It's opposed. And uh, I'd encourage you, if you've not had a chance to listen to that series, get hold of it, have a listen. It will bless you, and it will change your perspective on your own life. I really believe that kingdom warfare. So we come to part two of our series now. We're looking at the at kingdom culture, and we're going to be looking at Matthew 5 to Matthew 9, and we're going to be uh, breaking it up, and different ones are going to be contributing to that over the next couple of months or so, all right? So kingdom, Matthew 5 to 9, so if you want to get ahead of us, get into Matthew 5 to 9, read it, meditate on it, and have your heart open to what God wants to say. So we're going to be looking at Jesus' teaching in these chapters, but we're also going to be using this as an opportunity to look at our own culture as a church. We're going to be looking at what it's like to be a part of this church, what it's like to be Jubilee. Uh, We've done a lot of work on culture already, but we need to keep revisiting that. There's more to add. There's more to build into what God is doing amongst us. Over the last year, uh, we as leaders have been talking about our culture and trying to find words that describe and extend it so that it lines up more clearly with both our vision and the teaching of Jesus, which we find in these chapters. I found myself coming back to these chapters over and over again, just saying, what does it look like? What is it like to be in your kingdom? What does it mean to be a part of this kingdom? And, you know, I think this is one of the most important uh, subjects that we can deal with. I think it's one of the main reasons that the church exists for the kingdom of God to be advanced. The church isn't just an organization which is structured around a series of meetings or activities. If you thought that, I'm sorry we don't believe that. The church isn't just about that. No, the church is a place where God now lives on earth, within and amongst his people. It's his body that makes Jesus known to the world. So each local church, I believe, is meant to be a piece of heaven on earth. It's meant to be a piece of heaven and earth. God lives here. So as we worship, we expect the manifest presence of God. We expect his kingdom to come. We expect people to be healed. There was somebody recently, just in the context of worship, recently become a Christian. He got filled with the Holy Spirit, and he didn't even know that that's what was meant to happen. His kingdom was here. God's kingdom just broke out in a meeting a couple of weeks ago. One of our children said, do you know, I was looking around because I could hear this singing in tongues. Like tongues, he says. And the adults weren't singing. So I think it was an angel singing in the meeting. We expect God's kingdom, the things of heaven, to come and to break out on earth. That's our expectation. 
That's what it is to be a kingdom culture. His kingdom come and his will be done. I think that deserves an amen or a hallelujah or or something. Amen? Praise God. As I often say, Jesus builds the church, but we're called to extend the kingdom. We do this by preaching the gospel, living out the teachings of Jesus in our day-to-day lives, and by modeling kingdom life in the local church. We want to build a kingdom culture. We want to build a place where God's kingdom is powerfully lived out and manifested. But this is something that must be cultivated. But that's what we want to do. We want to set out some boundaries, have some clarity of what kind of culture God likes to live in. It says that God dwells amongst the church, but we also want him to be free to do whatever he wants. Amen? We want to be spirit-led. We want to know what the Holy Spirit is excited about, and that's where we want to go. Amen? And I think the Beatitudes are a really good place to start. That's what we're going to be looking at today in Matthew chapter 5. These very famous statements, which I think form a kind of overview uh, of the teaching that follows in the rest of the chapters 5 to 7. And then the teaching is demonstrated with powerful miracles in chapters 8 to 9. Because remember, as we saw last time, Jesus never just teaches... He never just gives us information and says, there you go. That's what I want you to learn for today. He always goes on to demonstrate or to authenticate his message with supernatural signs from his kingdom. Jesus doesn't just talk about his kingdom, he brings it. And that's what he wants us to do too. Not just to be all about talk, all about, you know, that's what we really want. No, we want to demonstrate, want to see God break out. That's our expectation. That's how we started off this morning. So I'm not surprised that God just comes and loves us. You know, he can't help it when that is our expectation. Praise God. So turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you haven't already. And I'm going to come on to look at the Beatitudes in a bit, but I want to start with an overview of this chapter because I think it will help us, the context will help us to understand what Jesus then uh, says in the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes, they're sometimes called the beautiful attitudes of Jesus. I like that. Jesus' beautiful attitudes. So Jesus setting out right at the beginning of his public ministry these attitudes. He's saying, uh, some, some call this his kingdom manifesto or his inauguration speech, but through them he sets out what the kingdom is like, telling his disciples especially how we're going to do things. It's doing things the Jesus way. Jesus sets it out. Look, we're going to go on this ministry trip, but I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. This is the Jesus way, and that's what we want, isn't it? We want to know the Jesus way. You know, there's people out there with all kinds of brilliant ideas about church and how to structure it, but we want to do it the Jesus way. We want to do what he's doing, want to go where he's going. I'm sure everybody wants that, but at the moment feel constrained (laughs) to pursue him for that. Lord, what are you doing? Where are you going? Like Jesus says, "I, I only do what I see the Father doing. Somehow, God, will you give us that? I only want to do what you're doing. So we want to do things the Jesus way. And he says that he delivers these words along with the rest of his teaching, which is often called the Sermon on the Mount, but he delivers them from the side of a mountain. 
from the mountain top. It says in verse 1 there, Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. So teaching then, they didn't have to stand. They would sit down and teach. And so he began to teach. And, and many have pointed out, and it's hard not to make the comparison with Moses. You know, Moses, who went up on the mountain to receive the law from God. And some people have made that comparison, say, oh, well, look, this is the set of rules for Jesus' kingdom. (laughs) They're impossible. So is that what these teachings and sayings are? New laws or conditions for entrance to the kingdom? Do you know, if if it is, if that's what it is, we're in trouble. (laughs) We're in trouble because Jesus raises the standards of the Ten Commandments beyond anything Moses said. So, for example, adultery to Jesus isn't just the act, but it's even the thought of it. Or murder, it isn't just the act, it's even calling somebody names. Oh, help. Because Jesus points out in his teaching that obeying God's law isn't just about the letter of the law, but it's also about the spirit of the law. Who then can be saved? None of us can reach this standard. It's totally unattainable. And for this reason, I'm so glad that the Beatitudes come before the teaching. Because it's here that Jesus stipulates the entry requirements for his kingdom. He says, look, this is what my kingdom is like. The most unqualified make it, praise God. The gentlest are the strongest. The losers are the finders. And the desperate find fulfillment. That's what my kingdom is like. Praise God. These are the kinds of people that get in. (laughs) Any losers here? (laughs) Any desperate people here today? Anybody who's just poor in spirit? I'm just desperate. You qualify. Welcome. Praise God. Now these are the kind of people that get in. So it makes it very clear that the high standards that following in the, that follow in the teaching Jesus delivers are not entrance exams. I'm so glad. I was so bad at exams. Uh, you know, some people, my daughter, for example, the night before the exam, she reads her book and remembers everything. I mean, what is that? How can you compete with that? I never had that blessing. I would revise for weeks, and then on the day of the exam, I forget everything. I'm so glad that there's no entrance exam for the kingdom of heaven. But there are attributes that can be seen emanating from the lives of those that are part of his kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, look, the entrance requirements are very low, but the life that you will live is transforming. You're not going to believe the way that you will live because of what I do in you by the Holy Spirit. He says it's like a tree. It's a bit like a tree. So in chapter 7, verse 16, he says it's like a tree. It's, it's by their fruit you will know them. So in other words, look at the fruits of the lives that they produce. Those in my kingdom, they might come in poorer spirit, but they produce the most amazing 
fruits. What comes first, the fruit or the tree? Well, the tree, of course, but the fruit is what the tree naturally produces. That is what is cultivated. This is its culture. But you need to be a part of this kingdom first. You can't produce it the other way around. Say, I'm going to live better, I'm going to live harder, I'm going to live more holy. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it that way around. You can't do it that way around. That's why Jesus said to the rich man, sell all that you have if you want to follow me, because riches are not going to save you. That's why he says to the religious man, you're going to have to be born again if you want to enter it. (laughs) That's why he says to the educated man, you're going to have to become like a child if you want to see it. Even see it. To even see the kingdom. Never mind get in. To even see it, you've got to be simple. You've got to come like a child, not childish, childlike. Because you've got to get in pretty low (laughs) to get into the kingdom. You in the kingdom? Do you qualify? You know, maybe... (laughs) Come to think of it, maybe this is more challenging than trying to live up to those standards. <laughs> Am I low enough? Am I desperate enough? Do I long enough? Am I aware enough of my sin and my desperate state? So that's the first thing. I just want you to see the Beatitudes are not an entrance exam. They're not the entrance exam. They're the low way that we get in. Secondly, I want you to see that these words are directed primarily at Jesus' disciples. In verse 1 again, it says, So he went up on the mountainside and sat down to teach. And then it says, His disciples came to him, verse 2, and he began to teach them. These words were primarily directed at his disciples. His disciples are his main focus. Here, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he says, look guys, this is how we're going to do it. I'm going to tell you what it's like to be a minister of my kingdom. These are the attributes of what the church will be like. And he taught them. He says he discipled them into his way of doing things. And then the miracles came. The miracles came as a product, as a byproduct of understanding how Jesus wants things done. See, I'm convinced that culture or what we cultivate in our lives and what we cultivate in our community together as church is what makes the supernatural possible. It's a natural product of our culture. And our culture needs to be the culture of heaven. And all those things that are contrary to this culture need to be weeded out. And we're going to be looking at some of those things as we come on to Jesus' teaching in the future. See, Jesus doesn't say these things to his disciples and then leave them to get on with it. He disciples them into it. He teaches them his way. The other thing I realize is that Jesus is speaking to his disciples primarily, but if you go on to chapter 7 and the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it it makes it clear that the crowds are there too. They're listening. They're listening to him. Verse 28 of chapter 7, it says, When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. 
The crowds were there too. So he's speaking these things to the disciples where the crowds are listening in. Why do you think this is? Why are the crowds there too? I mean, surely it would have been better or nicer or more comfortable perhaps if Jesus had addressed these issues behind closed doors. Okay, guys, we're going to do things very differently. So it's going to take a bit of adjustment because we're not going to do it as the world does it. I'm a king, but I'm not going to impose stuff on people. I'm not going to come from up here and command everybody. I'm actually going to get underneath them and lift them up. I'm going to do it completely differently. It's going to be an upside-down kind of kingdom, and you're not going to get it unless you follow me and watch me and become part of me and get some of my spirit in you. But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't deal with it in private because Jesus, even though he's speaking primarily to his disciples, he's speaking to the crowds too. He says to the world, he says to the unbelieving family members, he says to those on the edges looking in, look, this is what my kingdom is like. This is how we do things. Look, watch my disciples who I'm speaking to now. You watch them. You watch my disciples. Look at how they minister. Look at how they treat one another. Look at the fruit of their behavior. Look at my leadership. Look at how I teach them. Look. Ultimately, look at my church. Look at my people. Why? Because wouldn't you want to be part of something like this? Wouldn't you? This is wonderful. No government, no political leader has ever come up with such a manifesto. Wouldn't you want to be part of this? Wouldn't you want to become one of my disciples too? Do you know how many people are looking in on your life? People at work, people in your family, I mean, do you know how many people are looking in on this community? If people visit us, they look in on our community. They don't join, they look from the outside. Some even sit up the top there and just look in, looking in on this community. don't know if you've heard, there's a testimony that's come out recently of a, a Muslim lady who has visited the church only two or three times. Her whole perspective of God has changed because of being in Jubilee. He's not harsh. He's actually all right. He's fun and he loves people. People looking in on this community. Do they see the kingdom of God through you? Do they see the kingdom of God through us when they look in? Is it attractive? Do you know, I want us to be an attractive church. That's why we're careful about who stands up the front, you know. We only have really good-looking preachers. and It's modest as well. Um, but is this community of people, what we're building here, is it attractive? Because the Beatitudes and all the teaching that follows is the most attractive thing in the world because it's God's kingdom come. You know, it makes me so sad that for many, it is what they have seen and experienced of the church and some Christians that puts them off Jesus. That breaks my heart. 
that people can look at us and say, if that's what God's about, why would I want anything to do with it? Quite right in some cases. Are we an attractive community living out what Jesus is about, doing it the Jesus way? See, Jesus' objective is to make the disciple, make disciples of the crowd. When he's speaking, he's speaking to the disciples, but over their heads. He wants them to listen in. He wants them to be captured and caught by this attractive manifestation of his kingdom. But it's through you and me and the example of the kingdom that we cultivate amongst us and which we carry out into our day-to-day lives. You know, it's not just about church. Do you know that? It's not just about church. We practice here. This is where we get to practice spiritual gifts. This is where we get to practice loving one another. This is where we practice forgiving one another so that we can take you to work on Monday and live differently and the kingdom of God can be seen. I was just struck by that verse this week about doing our works before men, doing good works before men, so that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? We can be so coy with our Christianity sometimes. No, I want to live openly and do good works because that gives glory to my Father in heaven. They say, that's attractive. I'd like to be part of what they are. Amen? Can I have an amen? I believe that this will draw people to Jesus. Jesus said elsewhere that we were to love one another, not just because to love one another creates a nice atmosphere in the church, which it does. It's really nice to come into a church where people genuinely love one another. But it's not just that. Jesus says, it's because by this all men will know that you're my disciples because of the way that you love one another. That's why we need to love one another. Jesus is always preaching of the heads of his disciples to the crowds. And I believe that we're called to be the same, to be intentionally building something here that is reflective of the kingdom of God because it's attractive, it's wonderful so that others might see looking in and see your lives and our lives, to know what it is to be a jubilee person and take it at work on Sunday, on Monday, or Sunday if you work on a Sunday. Amen. Kingdom culture naturally produces the things of the kingdom, and so we must intentionally create and then maintain a culture in which God's kingdom thrives. But what does it look like? So now we come to the Beatitudes And there are some clues here that I want us to look at for the rest of our time today. And I'm going to go through them quite quickly. There are eight of them, but I just want to pick out the flavor or the feel of what Jesus describes. So before going any further, let's just read the passage, shall we? So Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 10. Jesus began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness 
for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed, 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 blessed. Blessed, blessed, blessed. That's the first thing that stands out, isn't it, when you read that? Blessed, blessed. It's the first thing that you recognize when you read it. Blessed, blessed. That's, the first, that's where Jesus starts. You're blessed. Are you blessed? You're blessed. <laughs> you're not cursed. You're not condemned. You're blessed. Isn't that wonderful? That's the kingdom manifesto. It's blessed eight times, possibly nine if you include the other one, which is a repeat of the eighth. Blessed. Got the message. You're blessed. Jesus says this, look, everybody who's in my kingdom is blessed. Blessed. Or it could be translated, and I actually quite like this, supremely happy. You are supremely happy because you're in the kingdom. Supremely happy. Happy are you when you mourn. You're supremely happy because you're in the kingdom. Doesn't just mean that everything's going well because some are poor, some mourn, some are persecuted, but you're supremely happy in the kingdom. Happy in your relationship with God, at peace with Him, at one with Him, with a clear conscience and sins forgiven. I'm not condemned anymore. I'm not desperate anymore. I found it. I found it. I'm at one with Him. Things aren't going right right now, but I know God loves me. Have you ever been to that place where all you've known is God loves me? Everything else is going wrong, but I know He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And do you know what? I love Him too. Supremely happy. At one with Him. And this releases in the kingdom an atmosphere of joy. Because, you know, that's where God dwells. Have you noticed this theme keeps coming back? It, sorry, if you're visiting today, you won't notice it. But this theme keeps coming back. You see, it says, in his presence is fullness of joy. So, so that's where God dwells. <laughs> in an atmosphere of joy. You know, the people of God are meant to dwell in an atmosphere of joy. They're not meant to be grumpy. They're not meant to be negative. Do you know, negativity is demonic in its root. God is never negative. Did you know that? Even when he rebukes, it's because he loves you. He's never negative. So if you think negativity is okay, it's part of my personality, well, I'm a glass-empty kind of person, repent. Let God break that off you. The people of God are happy, full of joy. And I've gone completely off my script. Positive, optimistic. Things are not going right, but I'm trusting God, and God is so big and so powerful. Do you know anything could happen? Is that your heart? Better get to the rest of them. Let's deal with two at once. Verse 3 and 10 talks about the poor in spirit and the persecuted. And I put these two together deliberately because they've got something in common that none of the others have, and this is very important for you to notice. The poor in spirit and the persecuted, because it says in the present tense, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now. It's available right now. 
Not sometime in the future. Not our vain hope that maybe one day. It's now. For theirs is the kingdom. It's available in the present. It's immediate. So, for example, the peacemakers may not see peace in their lifetime. The merciful may not receive mercy until Jesus returns. They will eventually, but they're caught between the now and not yet of the kingdom, which is both here, but is also to come. And that's why Jesus says, keep praying this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Keep praying it. It's still some stuff to pull down, still some stuff to get. We need his kingdom to come. We need Jesus to return. And then everything that is in heaven will be on earth. But in the, in the meantime, we're caught between things. Let's pray. Lord, let your kingdom come. That's sickness. Let your kingdom come. Not everybody is healed yet. One day, everybody will be. <sighs> Gone off again. But you see, the poor in spirit, just so we understand what we're talking about, is that those, they're those that have nowhere else to go. There's no other resources. They're circumstantially trapped. They're morally bankrupt, and they know their need of God. And the kingdom is full of those that know that God is their only hope. And this kind of desperation brings the kingdom of God to earth instantly, along with God's supernatural power and intervention in some remarkable ways. When you hit rock bottom and you're absolutely desperate. We saw this so vividly. A team from Jubilee went to South Africa last year in March. And we saw some desperate people there. They had no education. They had no wealth. They lived in shacks on the side of the road. They had no medical help. They had nowhere else to go. God was their only hope. So when we came with the good news, the message of the gospel, is it any wonder that supernatural phenomena occurred, miracles broke out, and we saw some of the most remarkable healings I've ever seen? They had nowhere else to go. And I think, you know, it's sometimes this, this general lack of desperation means that we don't always see the supernatural intervention that we long for in the same way in the West. We've got too many alternatives. You know, the medicine bottle is so close at hand, we can get a loan. You know, we've got contacts and networks, we've got family. Our resources are so vast, there's no desperation. We don't really need God. How desperate are we? How desperate are we? Now, how much do we long for God? You know, do we really need him? We really need him. And that's what these thirst meetings are about. I'm not trying to advertise that because I actually don't want people to come unless they are desperate and thirsty for God. I'm sorry. It's just we need to have that dynamic and not dial it down. I am desperate. If God doesn't turn up, if we don't have God in our midst, I don't want to do church anymore. There you go. And I'm paid by the church. So there you go. I want to see God's kingdom come. I want to see him break out. I want to see people healed and saved and delivered in greater numbers than we're seeing. There's such an ache inside me at the moment. I can't contain myself. 
And it's a God thing because I don't actually feel like that in my natural sense. I'm quite happy to just toddle along and, oh, that was a nice service. There's a desperation because I'm poor in spirit. And I know that's something God is doing amongst us at the moment. If you're feeling that ache at the moment, welcome it is God. <laughs> and, you know, the persecuted, they find the same kinds of intervention. Just before Christmas, I went to hear the vicar of Baghdad, Canon Andrew White, and he was telling us all these stories about persecuted people seeing incredible miracles, bomb plots being supernaturally foiled, angels appearing and shielding people, angels being seen by the children in the camp, just walking around, keeping watch. Huge angels, 12 feet tall. The kingdom of God is theirs. Right now, the people, so the people of the kingdom are those who live, get this, this is the culture, a culture of complete and utter dependence upon God. They're desperate people and so they pull miracles out of heaven. When your back is up against the wall, why is it that that's when God often turns up? I don't pray for that. I don't want that. I don't want to be persecuted. How desperate are we? And I think this is a hard one for us to cultivate in the West, but I think we are thirsty. I think we are thirsty. I think that's something God's doing amongst us at the moment. That's why it's so important. Verse 4. Those who mourn shall be comforted. Those that mourn shall be comforted. You know, those that are desperate and are persecuted also mourn. Those that have suffered loss, whether death, of a loved one financially or even morally, loss can be experienced in many ways. And, you know, there will come a day when there's going to be no more mourning. There's going to be no more crying. There's going to be no more sorrow. It's all going to be taken away. There will come a day when that happens, a day when all injustice will be righted at Jesus' return and those that have mourned will ultimately be comforted. But in between times, the Holy Spirit, who is also called the Comforter, he comes alongside those who mourn even now. And there are those others in the kingdom as well who come alongside those that are mourning and they comfort too by the Holy Spirit. Those who come alongside, those who minister to us. And so this is a culture of compassion a community of interdependent people called the church who are prepared to pay the cost of breaking our hearts with those that are heartbroken. It's a real cost to sit with somebody who is dying or to sit with somebody who has lost somebody. It's a real cost. But there are people in the kingdom who give themselves to that. They comfort those who mourn by the Holy Spirit. They do the Holy Spirit's work with him. Amen. And at this, in the same breath, because we're not just to mourn, we're also to rejoice with those that rejoice. Isn't that amazing? We're to comfort those who mourn, but we're also to rejoice with those who rejoice. So the kingdom is made up of celebrating and rejoicing as well as mourning. Next, it says in verse 5 that the meek will inherit the earth. The meek. And this is so contrary to the world which values the dominant, the harsh, the aggressive, and the self-sufficient. You know, we live in a world of make it happen, a kind of culture where anything goes. 
And these are the ones who so often dominate the earth and make their own many kingdoms. But Jesus says, ultimately, it will be the meek who inherit. That means, as of right, the meek who inherit the earth in his kingdom. Meek, meaning gentle, not weak. Meek is not weak. It's so often presumed, you know, even in the Christmas carol, it talks about Jesus, Jesus, so lowly, meek and mild. It sounds so wet, it sounds so poor and weak. Jesus isn't weak. He's not mild. (laughs) He's not weak and he's not mild. Jesus doesn't require such a doormat-like existence for us either. You know, if you think that being a Christian just means I'll lie down and take anything, you don't know Jesus. Jesus was the bravest man who ever lived. He confronted the authorities knowing that it would cost him his life. He endured the cross without opening his mouth. He could have defended himself, he could have got off, but he didn't. How brave is that? How strong is that? That's meekness. Meekness is gentleness. Meekness is about gentleness. It's the absence of domination and control. It's about loving correction. It's about a releasing and gentle atmosphere, but is not weak or cowardly. You know, the Holy Spirit is so often depicted as a dove, so gentle. Jesus and the Holy Spirit love gentleness. Verse 6, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. This is about those who long for righteousness. That they want it for others in terms of just, in terms of justice for themselves, in terms of moral purity and holiness. It's about longing after God and His kingdom, wanting things to be right. You see injustice out there. It stirs you. It makes you cross. It makes you pray and say, God, what's going on here? You hunger and thirst after righteousness. Ultimately, righteousness is about His kingdom come and His will being done on earth. That means that culturally the kingdom is about righting wrongs, standing up for the downtrodden and praying for God's kingdom to come on earth. There's no meekness, there's no cowardliness about, there's no weakness, there's no cowardliness about that. You stand up for people that are wronged, that's a brave thing to do. Verse 7, the merciful will be shown mercy. Sorry, I'm going quite quick. Is that okay? Are you keeping up? We will get to the end. There's one more to go after this. But I want to give you this overview, this flavor. The merciful will be shown mercy. And this is about compassion. This is about being compassionate for one another. A compassionate heart is based on the fact that we don't get what we deserve from God. We don't get what we deserve from God. We don't get punishment. We don't get condemnation. Rather, he gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us Forgiveness. He gives us restoration. I know this awareness makes us much more compassionate to others who sin or who even sin against us. It breeds a kind of humility in dealing with people knowing that in in different circumstances, it could have been me or it could be me in the future. So Paul writes, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourself, because you could also be caught. (laughs) Kind of meekness and humility when people sin, when people come and somebody speak to us a while ago about a sin they committed, 
and they really, really expected us to be angry, to condemn them, say, you should never have done that. They were completely undone by the fact that we just show love and mercy. So I'm so sorry that's happened. I feel dreadful for you. You must feel awful. You know, Jesus loves you. Meh. Tell you. How can we, how can we condemn people when we've been forgiven so much? This is about a culture of grace and forgiveness. Verse 8, the pure in heart will see God. This is about dealing with sinful behavior in our lives, not out of a sense of condemnation and self-loathing, but rather out of a single-minded loyalty to God and a desire to please him. These kinds of people see God. Think about that. See God. Do you want to see God? If your eyes are full of the world or full of impure things, or if your heart is divided, you're not pursuing God, then it's hard to see him. And encountering God everywhere is about pursuing him. So this is a culture of expectation and pursuit of God. We can see God at work in our lives, and he can be encountered. Finally, verse 9, the peacemakers will be called the sons of God. You see, the kingdom is not about divisions and strife, but peace. I'll say that again just in case you at the back missed that, because it's a really good one. The kingdom is not about divisions and strife, but peace. Especially this is about the gospel and the ministry of reconciliation that we all have in introducing the unbeliever to Christ. Bringing others into peace with God is our ultimate mission and purpose. Missional. A culture of mission, a culture of responsibility for those that don't know Jesus yet. Amen? Praise God. So that's the Beatitudes at a rapid rate.